Welcome to Touch Podcast, conversations of spirit and body. This is Nate. And I'm Ryan. Hey, quick word. The themes in this podcast include topics not suitable for children or adults who act like children. Previously on Touch Podcast. Are we sure this is a move that we want to make? Do we want to package virginity and sell it to kids? We are back on this episode of Touch Podcast with Jennifer Knapp as we continue our conversation with her about virginity, God, and consumerism. And we'll be joined a little later by Pastor Amy Mears and her congregation, Glendale Baptist Church, and how their church handles issues of sex. And I got to tell you, it's probably not what you think. It seems, it seems like a really good idea. True love waits. You know, it waits. Like, don't just give yourself out to anybody. And of course I would say that. Don't just give yourself out to everybody. You're amazing. You're a person of dignity and value and worth. And I hope you know what a cherished person you are, right? You know, let's talk about holiness. Let's talk about, like, the, the value of virginity in a different way. Let's talk about what it means, the sorrow of not knowing that I've treated my body well and somebody else's body well. Let's talk about what it means to understand our bodies positively. No, that's not the conversation we have. It's all shrunk down and packaged into, now we're going to put daddies and a daughter with their dances. And daddies and daughters are going to get dressed up like they're going to a wedding. And daddy's going to put a ring on her finger and make her say that when she gets married, she can take that purity ring off. I'm like... Whoa! Like for me and the experience that I've had, that sounds really sexually creepy. That sounds like a misunderstanding of what a father could be and understanding the value of his daughter instead of the property of his daughter. And then on top of it, as a musician, right, I go out and play and kid after kid after kid comes up and says, Thank you, your music has saved me from killing myself because I was so depressed because I I had sex with my boyfriend and I wasn't a virgin and now all this this shame around Christianity for them and they're they're working their way back to God because they've rededicated their life to Christ kind of over this funnel of shame. I'm like, something is wrong here. We're not talking about the things that actually drive human worth and value and dignity and we're just trying to wrap it up and not talk about the one thing that's actually driving the shame and so that sounds really complicated and that's all just because somebody came up to me and said write a song or write a devotional that tell, tells girls tells girls to be virgins and pure and not have sex and go to the daddy daughter dance and buy the ring and buy the devotional and buy the bible and I'm like hell no Hell no, because I've seen the shame that it causes if you don't understand it. I've been in the body that's had sex with a lot of people, and I've been driven by shame. I know what that is, and it's not that simple. And you you can't just shut the door on it and think that it doesn't exist anymore. It's it's a a tactic that I just, I don't know. For me, it was actually one of the, the, the dividing lines where I'm like, am I going, as an artist for as much as I get out of it personally to play and participate and share this, am I going to be in, am I going to let that be leveraged as a commodity in its place that sells Christianity rather than selling the experience of dignity and worth and spirituality and what that process is like as an artist, which is something I want to talk about and experience and play, or do I just want to package it, sell it, 
and have it, oh, this is what a Christian looks like, this is what a Christian sounds like, this is how a Christian votes, this is what a Christian does with their body, without knowing why they're doing it. It's, to me, it was just a backwards way, and it ended up breaking my back. I just couldn't participate in that anymore. Once I realized my own sexual orientation, once I had problems with certain theologies or what other people thought about God or what my church thought about God, I'm like, oh, well, I'm screwing this up. Like, I, I, I felt like such a fraud and such a traitor, even though I'd written all this art and all this music that was a genuine and sincere thing. Like, none of it was a lie. It was all about the journey, but all of a sudden I got to a place where I was like, oh, somebody think that means something different. Somebody think that means that I know everything and I don't. And now that I'm having a crisis, I was in the, in the art, in the consumerism of Christian music, you're supposed to be like creating this narrative that's certain and tells everybody what it's supposed to be. And that's not what art is and that's not what it does. It's the journey. And for me, everything that I'd written in the past, I just didn't know how to sing anymore. It just felt so inauthentic, maybe. Like I was, I was afraid that I was lying about it. And it, I, I would sit down to play the song and I just couldn't, like my arms would freeze up and I felt like a liar. And did I write something that was, you know, it just, it screws with your head. You're like, did I write something that I was lying about? Did I do it for the money? Did I try to fake it until I make it? You know, do you try to fake it till you make it? I think all those things are true, but Underneath of it, there was still something incredibly genuine that drove me. Like, as an artist, like, I always wanted to communicate something. And I'm always curious, I was curious about my faith and I wanted to struggle and wrestle with it. And then the one time that I really needed to do that, I was now in an environment that wouldn't allow me to do it. It was, you were a failure if you said the things that you needed to say. And it shocked me how much it was just always seemed to just whittle down to sex. Hey, so let's put a pause in this conversation with Jennifer Knapp right now. We're going to pivot and go into the subject of church and shame with our next guest, Pastor Amy Mears and Glendale Baptist Church. Imagine my surprise as a high school student when the adult leaders in small town, South Carolina, the leaders of our youth group, all volunteer, mostly parents, uh, and a couple of young couples, you know, because they're a good example, uh, decided to do sessions on sexuality with the youth. Tonight, uh, we are specifically zeroing in on a conversation about sexual practice as it relates to how the church has talked about uh, what we do with our bodies um, and how that relates to our spirit. And uh, so I think we're going we're gonna to talk a couple stories from our background, and um, we're really excited because your pastor here at Glendale Baptist Church, Amy Mears, is uh, agreed to be uh, on camera and on audio with us uh, this evening um, to offer some of your own reflections um, as a pastor of a really wonderful church that has been working through these kinds of issues on the cutting edge of uh, faith for quite some time. So these conversations are not new to your congregation or to you? Not a bit. Not a bit. That's right. Wow. And so we're really glad for your experience and expertise um, as you join us this evening. So my name is Ryan Clark, and um, a couple things that uh, you may not know. Between 1993 and 2002, uh, over 2.5 million uh, teenagers in Baptist churches in the South made commitments not to have sexual contact before marriage. 
They signed cards. Those cards got mailed into denominational headquarters. And that was part of a large program that was common in a lot of evangelical churches in the United States um, during the 90s and uh, 2000s. Uh, around the same time, uh, a 21-year-old young man uh, named Joshua Harris wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was sort of the college student's companion to the purity pro youth pur purity programs for teens. Um, that All of that rolled into uh, a movement of quote-unquote purity in evangelical churches in the United States, uh, a movement that both Nate and I were a part of. Yes, for me, um, I was born and raised in the church, and um, I was uh, a leader in youth groups. You know, I got involved in college when I was at, with Scott Willis at the VSU, and actually Scott helped me make these first videos. Um, that inspired me to go to USC film school, so I've been living out in Los Angeles. Met my wife at a church over there. She was my best friend. And we decided not to have sex before marriage. I was a working minister at the time, and so any sexual thought I had, um, as, as much as I wanted to give it to my wife, um, I, I didn't feel like I could. And I felt trapped. I felt professionally trapped. I felt my identity was trapped. Um, after 12 years, uh, we never had kids for that very reason, and after 12 years, we, we chose to separate. Uh, and I realized that I, at that time, I had a clinical fear of sex. I had PTSD. So um, if, if there was a woman and she let her, you know, if, if I was on a date and she kind of like said, hey, you want to come over to my place tonight, you know, or something like that, I would get flashes. And it froze me. Uh, so all of a sudden, shame, which, you know, shame, uh, shame for sex, it, it froze me, and so I chose to take a very bold path to healing. I stepped out of my faith. Um, I went to Eastern religions, I went to Tantra, all this stuff like this, and uh, it brought me back to God. Um, and when it brought me back, I, one of the things I had to do was come back to my home, right? How does this all fit? And as I came back home in my reconnection with, with Ryan and, just, and with Scott and with Marshall, what I'm learning is that this isn't just my story. This is everyone's story in, in various degrees. And um, that's mine. Well, the purity culture hadn't been invented when I was a young person, right, <laughs> in the 1970s. Um, but in middle school, well, middle school hadn't been invented in the 1970s. In junior high, which was seventh and eighth grade, uh, we passed around uh, soft core porn books, you know, The Flame and the Flower, The Wolf and the Dove, and Sweet Savage Love, um, which in retrospect are rape novels about 16-year-olds who are raped and then fall in love with the hero eventually and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so uh, it's a not great training ground. Uh, but it was what was there for my friends and me. And uh, we literally passed them around, and then somebody's mother would confiscate them, then we would find them again and pass them around. So it's sad, but it was true. So these were, these were I'm going to jump in just for yeah. clarification. These were like little no, uh, romance novels? doorstop novels. Yeah, not Harlequin romances. Okay, so but, mm -hmm. with the little corners bent over on the spicy scenes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, memorized. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, and so the sequels. Some of them were there were several. Uh, <laughs> now I'm re I'm, I just have a memory now of 
finding books like that in my mom's. Yeah, a yeah. fascinating anyway. aside is yeah. that uh, the the last time that I was in a Baptist bookstore, now called Lifeway Bookstores, and as we were in the line to check out to buy this baptism robe, um, there were all there were shelves of paperback novels. Um, they looked a lot like the things I read in junior high school. And because I'm bad to the core, I was saying very loudly, April, April, look at these books. This one's called The Apothecary's Daughter. Huck, her slips tore. I mean, that was terrible. And everyone's going, oh, God, would you shut up? Oh, my God, would you shut up? We've got to get out of here. It's just never really quite forgiven me for it. Um, so I guess it, but the, in that version, they get to, like, they're about to go on their first date, and then they just they just have a conversation and go The home. apothecary steps in. I don't the know apothe- what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, imagine my surprise as a high school student when the adult leaders in small town South Carolina, the leaders of our youth group all volunteer, mostly parents, uh, and a couple of young couples, you know, because they're a good example, uh, decided to do sessions on sexuality with the youth. And um, so <laughs> we were game. It was going to be interesting. And we had a lot, and we had, it was actually, well, okay, it was kind of different from what we do now with our youth here, but it, it started the same way. You know, the mechanics of bodies and acts and stuff. And, and then we just, there was a lot of free-for-all kinds of conversation. And I had one goal, and I was um, tenacious, and did I already mention I was kind of rotten to the core? Uh, my goal was how far is too far? If you're going to bring us in here and talk with us about sex, you're going to answer the question. And I had to ask it and ask it and ask it. And I knew, God love her, the woman who was in the hot seat that night was, couldn't believe I was going to make her answer the question. But I did. And she said, well, boys are going to touch your breasts. But anytime they touch you below the waist and you fully clothed, that's too far. Well, I was gobsmacked. I'm like, my whole life has been a lie? Are you kidding me? Boys are going to touch your breasts? We can do that? I had no idea. Nobody ever told me uh-huh. that that was acceptable. Um, let me jump in here and say that this is where we'd spend 30 seconds talking about how awesome our sponsor is. If it were you or your company, I'd start off by talking casually about your company, add a few interesting facts, and tell our huge listening audience how to get some more of what you got. And even write the copy of If You Want. Because we had never had conversations about what was acceptable. Right. Um, so it was not a purity culture at all, actually. Because I believe that's verboten if you go down in the front to get your ring or your watch in a True Love Waits weekend. Uh, I, I don't know. Never having... I heard if it was covered by a bathing suit, don't touch it. Okay. That, I heard that one. Okay. And then we had um, absolutely no heavy petting. Now, ha- now, me, not having not been raised in church, I honestly... And I, I, in fact, we had just, like, there's all these youth got saved in this um, youth revival, and then it's like, there's all these new youth in the youth group, and so, like, the very next thing they did was, like, this, the purity Bible study stuff to make sure that, I guess, that we were all going to have a big orgy in the youth room, and 
uh, and they were talking about heavy petting. And I never, it was years, I would think it was in college when I figured out what heavy petting, what, what they meant by heavy petting. Well, I think that's one of those hermeneutical questions that uh, what, is what, defined what by is? yes, <laughs> defined by the interpretive community. Apparently, touching breasts was not heavy petting. Well, that's what I thought. Wait, 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 let's, wait, let's okay, pretend. Sorry. Let's pretend one of us here. <laughs> let's pretend one of us here has not gone to seminary. <laughs> he doesn't know what hermeneutical yes, means. Yes. <laughs> so what's what's hermeneutical? The way that one and, interprets stuff. Okay. So the interpretive community, and we we talk about that a lot in this church. Okay. Um, because if you get out toward the edges on some schools of thought, people immediately assume you have no boundaries. You know, if we bless same-sex marriages here, then we would probably, you know, we would bless marriage between a person and a dog, or 17 people, or um, an adult and a child. But it's clearly not the case because the boundaries that we draw as a hermeneutical community, as an interpretive community that interprets our sacred text as uh, authoritative and guiding for our practice, um, sets parameters. And we talk about them so that we know where they are. Yeah. And that was the problem in my growing up years was we never knew where the boundaries were because we didn't talk about them. So at least the purity culture says we've got boundaries and we're drawing them with a big fat paintbrush. Yeah. Yes. Right. And the consequences for breaking the boundaries are, you know, yeah. heinous, mental illness, yeah. destruction of marriage, suicide. I think a part of the conversation we're having, which I mean, this is I'm glad you said that because like I was, I was told that too. And so I was thinking if I was to have sex or experience sex in any way outside the, outside the dynamic that was supposed to be holy, mm -hmm. it would either be um, less enjoyable or it would lead to some type of consequence down the world in which, I don't know, the whole universe would explode. Now looking back, I don't think our youth leaders were, had a single evil or angry or even um, unwholesome intention for us. Right. I think they really was coming from a good place, except that the animating energy was fear. And I think at the time, you know, there was the, we had just kind of weathered or were still in the uh, HIV AIDS crisis, you know, teen pregnancies were on the rise in the United States, and, and culture was really starting, was revving up to change very quickly, right? right? I think they were just like doing whatever they could to try to protect, you know, what at least those leaders were perceiving as being sweet and wholesome and good mm -hmm. and trying to keep kids from getting diseases and getting pregnant and it, but unfortunately at least in my experience and, and, and quite frankly many of the experiences of the people we've been talking to it you know it felt felt pretty short of being of being holy let's say that there's a whole lot of people out there who have uh, an assumption of what a pastor is and what a pastor thinks of sexuality and if you were to tell people because you're a pastor what are the things that you've taught or shared that have made people do a double take? Like, what, really? Well, our um, congregation has been blessed a uh, thousandfold by our connections with students from Vanderbilt Divinity School. There are a yeah. number of those students here tonight. Um, and some of them, well, and they're very forward-thinking people, uniformly. The one thing they all have in common is they are looking for the edges and intellectually 
uh, and socially are helping us think in new ways about scripture, about uh, Christian witness, about the church and its role in society, um, all of those things, about who we are as human beings and how we can be more fully human, how we can have life abundantly, if mm -hmm. you want to go scripture on me there. We worked um, fairly early on on a, a, a retreat, a sexuality retreat for our youth, which we've done for nine years at least. About every three years we have one. So theoretically, um, you attended as a younger youth and then again as an older youth. And it's a very different experience when you're 13 than it is when you're 16 or when you're 14 or when you're 18. So, um, and I get to participate in that because I needed to be able to say to parents, um, this is okay. This is, I, I know what they're doing. They're, you know, it's, uh, it's good science and it's good Bible and it's good social and it's good um, training for minds and hearts and bodies of young people. Um, and I had three teenagers in the youth group. It was really helpful for me to be able to be a part of that and it was very helpful and April um, participates in those as well. It's very helpful for our, for our relationship with young people. Some of them are now you know, well into their 20s but who knew as young teenagers that they can talk with their pastors about putting a condom on a penis form, right? And whether they're doing that in appropriate ways, right? That are gonna provide for the safety of people who use condoms, right? Because this is what you learn from Planned Parenthood sexuality uh -huh. educators. You also learn a lot about Song Solomon and about your call um, as a follower of Jesus to be kind and to be aware. Um, so uh, that kind of experience uh, repeatedly, and I'm getting better at the content part of that retreat. Um, well, one thing that it has resulted in is that the teenagers in this church know that in my bottom right hand drawer in my desk in my study is where the condoms are. Let's pause it right there. You'll need to tune in next episode when we learn more about Pastor Amy's condom drawer, church sex camp for adults, and some comments and questions from Vanderbilt Divinity students. Don't forget to tell your friends about Touch Podcast. You can track us down on social media or go to touchpodcast.com where you'll find videos, essays, and other extras. You can also subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts.